Friends, would you open with me your Bibles to Acts chapter two as we continue our series on this precious, precious book, the earliest days of the church. I'm gonna read that last paragraph in Acts two, beginning in verse 42. Hear now God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are your bride. We are the bride of Christ. Would you beautify us to look as we did in these early days? Do this in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this paragraph may be familiar to you, I hope it is, but this description of the earliest days of the church is just so beautiful, it's so marvelous. I don't want to touch it because I don't want to break it. I mean, could this possibly be? Could the church exist in this way? Would a converted capitalist really sell a possession to help me in time of need? I mean, would a rabidly isolated American really open up his house to have me at his dinner table and to ask me questions about my soul? Could there be a church family where baptismal water is thicker than biological blood? If that's possible, if this is possible, this is where I want to be. This is the fellowship I want to be named among. I want to do life this way in God's kingdom, in the resurrection of Jesus. Well, friends, we just spent time in Pentecost, that great event where the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, falls on the church, indwells the church from this time forward, attended by these incredible sounds and signs. It was a mountaintop experience. But now we're leaving the mountaintop and entering the valley. I mean, that was fantastic, but now we're going about the familiar. And I don't want to leave because Pentecost was awesome. I mean, it was incredible. You've got fire, you've got loud noises. I mean, that's like my basic description for what I want to watch in a movie, you know, when Julie says, you want to watch something together? Does it have loud noises and does it have fire? If so, I'm there. Pentecost has both. This miracle of people talking in other people's languages and of these mass conversions is incredible. I don't want to leave Pentecost. I want to stay there. I want Pentecost every day. I kind of feel like the Apostle Peter when he was on the mount and he got to see Jesus' transfiguration. And it was glorious. Jesus was dazzling in bright light. He was revealing his glory to them. And Peter said, because he didn't know what to say, let's make three tents and let's just stay here on the mountain. This is incredible. And Jesus says, "Um, no, we're not going to do that we got to go down to the valley because there's work to be done. 
And so he says to us this morning, we're not going to stay at Pentecost because we got to get up and go to work on Monday morning. But if we can move from the mountaintop into the valley, we get to actually explore the rhythms, the rituals, the habits of what it means to be a believer in Christ. You've got the conversion. Now we get to hear about the growth. So I'd like to see two things from our passage. Number one, what are these Christian habits? What did they put into place? What were these practices? And number two, what is the heart behind them? So first, what are these habits? What did they actually start doing together? Now, as a general rule, I don't take cheap shots at the American church because I am the American church and whatever I throw at her bounces off and hits me. But then also she's the bride of Christ and warts and all, she's the beloved of our savior. And so take a cheap shot at my bride and see what happens. But surely there is a prophetic word here. Surely if we hold the earliest church before we hear about all her problems and her sins which come in the book of Acts, surely when we see what she's about and hold her against the church as we've become today, we must admit that American church has slipped its moorings and has become a drift in a sea of a consumeristic culture. Surely we must admit that that we can be so eager to provide what our paying members expect that we have little time to devote ourselves to the fellowship that God desires us to have. We run ourselves ragged. We man programs and events and concerts and content and services and streaming experiences that we don't feel like we could add one more thing to our plate even if God says these are the main things. But before the church became a storefront or a Sunday concert or a therapy lounge or a self-help club or a logo or a franchise or a corporation, she was this. She was a gathering of the unlikeliest of peoples under the banner of the death and the resurrection of the Son of God And she was relearning together what it meant to be a human being in God's world. That's what she is. And with that in mind, she sets about these four things, four habits that are described to us. And a wise church doesn't say, well, these sound great. Let's add them to what we're already doing. A wise church says, how about we start with these four And then we build a church around it. These are the four in verse 42. Teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayers. I want to walk through each of those four just briefly. So number one, you've got teaching. Verse 42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That word devoted means they continually and fervently were learning about God's truth. I don't think a Sunday morning sermon can hold the weight of a church that is hungry for her Bible. Jesus said in the Great Commission in Matthew, this is what you do as the church. You teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. I want you to teach them everything. 
Paul says to the Ephesian church plan in Acts 2, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. You heard everything from me. A healthy church is a church that is neck deep in her Bible, personally, by herself, within her family, and within a church body. She's a truth-loving, truth-studying, truth-speaking community. First and foremost, that's what a church is. Well, this is interesting because number two is fellowship and the two are intimately connected because here's what's so wild to me. Some of you guys are new to Columbia. You've just moved here. You've just started school here. And if I were to tell you, hey, there's this church on such and such corner that is founded on the word of God. It is a robust teaching church and it, and it subscribes to the historic reformed faith. That alone wouldn't tell you if that was a healthy church. Sadly, because some of us have been to robust teaching churches and everybody's a jerk. How could that be? Like we do a a 50-week sermon series on all the Greek occurrences of koinonia fellowship and nobody talks to me and nobody smiles to me. We're teaching the Bible, but we don't actually like each other, the people who are sitting next to us. There's a church in Lexington. I won't name names. I don't know if it's still there, but it has a sign out front that says, Fundamentalist Baptist Dispensational Premillennial KJV Only Church. <laughs> wow. And then in small letters, it says, Visitors Welcome. <laughs> and it's like, Really? If my kid walks up with an NIV, is he welcome? I mean, just because I study the Bible doesn't mean I do the Bible. And I think biblical fellowship can be a good litmus test. You can tell me about your teaching church, but I want to see her fellowship. That word fellowship here is indeed the Greek word koinonia, but by itself, that English translation has become such a tame, tepid, watered-down word. I'm afraid it can hardly be redeemed. I mean, it just gets buried in like the 30-minute coffee hour before church. Did you get your fellowship in this week? Yeah, yeah, I did it. I did it for 20 minutes, and now I'm done. But check out this mark of fellowship in verses 44 and 45. I've never heard anybody describe fellowship quite in this way. When we say we're a fellowship church, the early church meant, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's radical. There's actually a parallel verse I read this week in 2 Corinthians 8.14. It says, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that that there may be fairness. Paul is saying that the church's wealth is kind of like manna, where when some people woke up and grabbed a lot of it and some people grabbed a little of it, nobody had too much, nobody had enough left over, everybody was provided for. That's the, the wealth of the church together. So here's a test for biblical fellowship. 
You tell me you're a Bible-believing church. You tell me that you're grounded on the word of God. You tell me you take this thing seriously. You tell me you have professions of faith that nobody can spell, the Heidelberg Catechism. That's great. Let me ask you this. Do I see my abundance as God's means to provide for my church family's needs? Does he give me gifts so that I can share them with people in this church body. Like when I get a raise, when I get a bonus, when I get a new job, do I think this is great? Now I can help other people in this body who have needs. Do I see my church family's abundance as God's means to provide for my needs? When I'm fearful, when I'm anxious, when I don't know what's gonna happen to my job in 2020 after this pandemic, do I take comfort to know that God has so richly provided for this church body and that they are my family that I will be provided for too? In other words, 1 John 3.18, do I love my church family in word or in talk or do I love them in deed and truth? Are we a talking church? Or are we a deed church with respect to fellowship? Now, you guys remember that this summer we nominated officers, elders and deacons, who were then going to go away for training to be trained for those offices brought back for a church vote. So they're behind the scenes. You haven't seen them yet. Um, they're being tested. They're going through obstacle courses. They're doing everything that an officer needs to do. One of the things that we're asking of anybody who we're going to present back to you to vote on to be an elder and a deacon is, do they give generously to this church? Like we're going to pull your giving statement and then we're going to, um, you, you compare that to what you're making. And I want you to tell me if you're generous towards Columbia Presbyterian Church. And we do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, why would we let people sit around making decisions about money that doesn't include their money? And number two, from this passage, Acts chapter two, I want to know if these men fellowship in a way that costs them something. Do you have skin in the game of fellowship? Is it costly to you to be a member of this church? That's what we want to see in fellowship. So there's teaching, there's fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. Verse 42 says, again, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always taken this primarily to mean that they were doing the Lord's Supper. They were doing the Eucharist. And then secondarily, they were having fellowship, eating in each other's houses. But I got shouted down all week by commentaries of, of men and women way smarter than I am. And they said the inverse is true. This is actually primarily about eating together in each other's houses. And secondarily, it's an allusion to the fact that the Lord's Supper also was served at some of those meals as a part of this fellowship, which is a beautiful thing. And that's underscored by verse 46 when it says that they were eating in each other's homes, receiving food with gladness. So, I mean, look at this visual picture where in Acts chapter one, the entire church was gathered in one upper room, 120 were meeting in the upper room and worshiping God there. But by Acts chapter two, with these conversions, the one room has become the many rooms because the church has fanned out into the city of Jerusalem in each other's homes, fellowshipping with one another around the dining room table. 
was started as this upward love to God couldn't help but move to this outward love to other people and the church is loving God and loving others, sharing her money, sharing her dining room table. Number four says that she also prayed. In chapter one, we saw that the 120 were gathered devoting herself to constant, continual prayer. And in chapter two, we find her doing the exact same thing. She's still devoted to constant and continual prayer. Prayer is gonna be mentioned 20 times in the book of Acts. It's on par with reading our Bibles. This was part and parcel of a healthy church is to be a praying church. So you've got teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. These are all the ways that the church was moving in her love for God, her love for other people. These were the regular patterns of the body of Christ. That's what she was doing. That was her routine. Secondly, I want to ask, what was the heart behind it? What were the motives behind it? And I love the answer to that question in verses 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I think verses 46 and 47 make or break verse 42. If we don't have glad, generous, praising hearts, we don't really have teaching, fellowshipping, breaking bread, and prayer in any biblically meaningful way. It's good news that God cares about hearts. It's good news that God's not desperate to find reluctant givers. Instead, he enjoys and is happy with cheerful givers. It's good news that God doesn't just care about rote obedience, but that he desires to work this miracle inside of us for loving and happy obedience because that's what we're made to do. How sweet and beautiful to love the very habits that we're doing. Who among us wants to be a miserable giver? You're losing both ways. You're losing your money and you're miserable about it. How delightful if God's spirit can really do this work to make us happy, cheerful, generous givers that are glad to give ourselves away. I heard a lecture a couple of weeks ago that just brilliantly described this point. Um, John Piper does these seminars. He does these lectures on biographies of saints um, in history. And so you can find them on Desiring God. I recommend every single one of them to you. And I've listened to a bunch of them, but I never realized that he actually did one on his dad. So, I mean, he's done Augustine and Calvin and Luther, and then there's Bill Piper, his dad, who he did a whole lecture on, and he entitled it Fundamentalist Filled with Grace and Joy. Doesn't that sound like a John Piper title? Um, It made me sympathetic to fundamentalism because when his dad was a fundamentalist, that was really when the liberal church began to split and was no longer looking to the word of God as its authority. And so fundamentalist, first and foremost, just meant, I believe that this is the inerrant word of God, which we all agree with. But then Bill Piper also, in his interpretation, added a bunch of really strict requirements to his home. 
So, I mean, there was no drinking. There was no dancing. You could not go to a movie theater or watch a movie. There was no secular music, no card playing. I mean, you couldn't do any of that stuff. Some of you came from households like that. Some of you are creating households like that. It's like we will not be playing solitaire up in here. That is anathema. That's, okay, we could talk about that later. But here's what's crazy. John Piper grows up in that house, and his parents make him wrestle through, you know, uh, a girl invites him to a dance. What does he do? And he's got to process that and say no. And uh, his whole class wins an award, and they're going to the movie theater. What's John Piper going to do? And he declines, and... He says, I grew up in that household, but I actually never resented my parents when I was a kid or when I was a teenager or now as an adult. I was never cynical about them. I didn't disparage them. I wasn't resentful. And every parent is leaning in and saying, how is that possible? And Piper says this, because they were some of the happiest people I ever met. Isn't that incredible? Like within this kingdom, applying ourselves to what God is calling us to do with the joy that the Holy Spirit freely gives us, we'll hit on some areas, we'll miss on some areas, we err as human beings following Christ, but the glue that held this family together under Christ was parents who were joyful to do God's work. That's incredible. We know that this is true. We know that there is such thing as a joyless hospitality, right? We've all done this before. Kids, we got church people coming over tonight, all right? So shut up and clean your room and we'll get this done as soon as possible. And we've done that. And we caught the second half of the ball game and it was okay. But I suspect our kids knew it and we knew it and the church people knew it, and our neighbors knew it, when all the while, God is offering us a joyful participation in these things. Kids, our church family is coming tonight. And I could have gotten the Bilo chocolate chip cookies, but I drove an extra mile to Publix to get my favorite chocolate chip cookies because it's church people coming. This is our family. And when they come, I suspect our kids know it, and I suspect they know it, but you know who else is watching from afar and seeing this warm, delightful, joyful fellowship? It's our neighbors. Verse 47, all this was happening in the church, but somehow the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Whatever's happening in that house, that's what I want to be a part of. I want to learn what it means to inhabit that kind of kingdom. May it be so. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you refresh us in the spirit to remind us to be joyful participants in this family? that together we're under your word, that together we share what we have with those in our body in need, that we share our dining room table and fellowship with one another, that we pray together because we are this family, this body of Christ. Let us do with this with glad and generous hearts so that our neighbors will see and notice and that they will join us too. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.